0: Our fundamentalists welcome back to another episode of your favorite brown babes breaking down taboos and dissecting desi culture
1: across the diaspora i'm faiza and i'm meg and today we're continuing our political arc of uh, episodes for season four with the lovely sanya khan sanya is an assistant attorney general in the civil rights bureau at the office of the new york state attorney general She's worked to challenge the addition of the citizenship question on the decennial census, the termination of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, also known as DACA, and the Muslim bans. In addition, Sanya works on issues related to technology and civil rights and the prevention and prosecution of hate crimes. Sanya has also served as the Muslim community's liaison for the attorney general's office and is a graduate of U of Miami School of Law, class of 2009. Just aged yourself, Sanya, But most <laughs> importantly, Son- Sanya is an Albany native. Hello, hello, hello.
2: Welcome. Welcome to the pod. Hi, hi, guys. Thanks for having me. We're super excited to have you. And I'm a very strong representative of the 518. 518. Yes. Yes. 518. The 518.
1: <laughs> um, once I went to BK Donnie with my husband, and Sonia had written like 518 on the wall. Oh so my God. She takes it, she takes it real serious.
2: You know how we're all, like, a little special. We'll a little too much. Albany. Yeah. A little too much. A
1: little too much. Um, Sonia, I'd love to start with kind of the AG's office and how you got there. So can you give us just a quick crash course on the Attorney General's office and the Civil Rights Bureau in particular? So um, the Attorney
2: General's office is what you could call, like, the state's attorney. So each state in the country has an attorney that represents them when Um, you know, someone suing the state, like they're suing law enforcement, they're suing any other type of agency, but the state's attorney also enforces. And so what that means is that they go after and prosecute like crimes and issues that happen, illegalities that happen. And that's kind of where the Civil Rights Bureau comes in. So here in New York, um, the attorney general, who's the state's attorney, uh, is actually an elected position. Um, I did want to just mention that because in some states, it's an appointed position, but here in New York, it's elected. And I think for the last 20 to 25 years, um, it has been a Democrat. However, there are Republicans who have held the position as well. So the Civil Rights Bureau is situated actually on the enforcement side of the office. So that's the affirmative side of the office. Um, And we can enforce federal, state, and city civil rights laws. So sometimes people don't realize that even though we're a state attorney general's office, we can enforce federal law. Um, and so the mandate is actually very broad. And um, that's where I have been since about mid-2016.
1: Awesome. So what what got you here? What led you to this path? And what keeps you there? Because I can't imagine it's um, easy work, albeit very fulfilling, but what what drives you in it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'll say first, you know, I graduated in 2009, which is, which was the other financial crisis that happened. And, um, you know, at that time, uh, there were just no, the legal sector got hit so hard. Um, and in particular because the banks got hit and then law firms, and then a lot of people who were working at law firms ended up moving into the public sector. And so there was just the lack of jobs all around. So I actually, um, ended up at the attorney general's office because they created a volunteer attorney program. And I I didn't have a job, I couldn't find a job and I ended up there and I worked for free for a year. And I just had very, I have very supportive parents which I'm I'm very, very thankful for um, that really said, you know, uh, just get experience um, during this time if you can. And and I did, I was able to work in the appeals and opinions bureau in Albany. and and then ended up moving sorry, to the litigation. Sorry, bureau.
1: Where was yeah. that? Where was that,
2: Tanya? <laughs> you know, in the five one eight. Okay. Just wanted just wanted, just wanted to to flag that, yeah. Um, and then I ended up going into the litigation bureau, and then I ended up in the civil rights bureau. And I I think it's I've kind of done like a tour of the office, but what's kept me here throughout my career thus far is um, I feel like, a working in the public sector. There's just that, not that many resources. So younger attorneys, younger employees get to do a lot more things than you tend to be able to do in the private sector. Um, you just get thrown in. You know, I was um, one year out of law school and arguing at the appellate court, um, one of the appellate courts in New York, or I was like, fo- the following year, I was in court four days a week, which is crazy for somebody who's kind of two years out of law school, but you get those opportunities in the public sector. And then, I mean, if you asked anyone, I was kind of never intended to be a practicing attorney. I intended to go into policy work or international development work, Um, but I always had a really strong interest in domestic civil rights too. And I got an opportunity to move into the civil rights bureau Bureau, July, 2016, which was three months before, um, you know, the previous administration was elected and I, I couldn't I don't have any insight into like that timing at all, but I can just say that um, being in the civil rights Bureau for the last four years has been um, probably one of the most formative times in my career. Um, and I'm so grateful that I stayed here and I learned a lot. Um, so yes, that's, that's why I've been here for so long.
1: So I probably should have, Said this at the outset, but obviously anything you say today is your personal opinion and not representative of the bureau. But I can't get through this episode without asking you about like the temperature of the office during the Trump years. And I know you said you joined like right um, before he was elected, so it's not like you have um, tons of experience in the Civil Rights Bureau during the previous administration, but. Any even like anecdotal thoughts from colleagues or whatever about how the the work has changed or um, morale has ch- like I can't imagine, especially for people who had been there during previous administrations. I can't mm-hmm. imagine it was easy to deal with the nonsense. Mm-hmm. I can say that because I'm not a public. Just like the absolute <laughs> shit show, the dumpster fires every single day, and what it does yeah. to you from you know, just a, an emotional morale perspective. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's,
2: I, I should start by saying first that um, I am speaking in both my professional and my personal capacity. And so there are some questions I'm answering in my professional capacity and some in my personal, which I know doesn't make sense. But um, I would say thus far, I've been speaking in my professional capacity and I'll flag when when I'm in my personal. So um, that being said, I think there's no doubt that the, um, the disposition and the position of state attorneys general around the country completely shifted after the 2016 election, um, at least on the, I would say for a lot of democratic um, AGs. So we didn't anticipate, right? Like being on the front line of the civil rights challenges of the moment, the way that we were after 2016. I think there had been a practice within the office um, to sue the federal government on in other ways, like the Environmental Bureau had sued actually, you know, the Obama EPA for specific things or other, you know, other uh, presidents for specific policies. So it really depended on the bureau that you're in. But civil rights had never really been in a position where we were ever kind of suing the federal government. In fact, we kind of were looking up to, you know, what is the Department of Justice doing, what are their policies and practices and and what are the priorities and that sort of stuff. Um, also with the understanding that like, you know, we are um, serving all New Yorkers here. And so looking at, you know, state issues and how we can kind of emulate what's happening at the DOJ level here on the state. Um, and I will say that one really fundamental thing to, to underscore here is that this the state attorney general um, represents all New Yorkers. It doesn't matter what what political leaning they have—Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever—and um, really, like determination of investigations and litigation is based on illegality of who, like who has kind of just committed some sort of illegality on like federal, state, and city in our in our world civil rights laws. So, all of that to say that, yeah, I mean. I would say that the work of the the bureau it definitely shifted the last four years. We never had a practice of suing the federal government, um, federal agencies at that time, and we created one. Um, it just so happened that you know there were a lot of policies that were rolled out um, that were within the civil rights sphere, and it really kind of resulted in certain state attorneys general across the country kind of creating multi state coalitions. And that's what when I was working on the census case or the Muslim band case or the DACA case, you know, we were suing. New York had led um, DACA, for example, and census and we and the Muslim band, actually. And we um, we assembled like a whole coalition of like 30 states and cities across the country. And we were all the plaintiffs going into court in New York on this national issue. And I think that was just so unique to the moment. Um that we were in. And I, and I, and I do think that like that coalition sort of thing will probably still exist post this moment, but um, you know, just like what the last four years has proven even on the activist level, which is like organize, organize, organize. I think you've you've seen that on every other like governmental level. Um, Just a lot more coalitions, a lot more organizing on the progressive side to an extent.
0: I think it's a great example of checks and balances that you learned in elementary school of like the, the power of checks and balances and how our ex- uh, system is set up in like um what are they called uh, a venn diagram of like executive branch and legislative <laughs> and judicial uh because yeah. like the department of justice is uh, sets like the federal mandate and policy but the states still have power as far as enforcing and can sue the federal government even if there isn't a precedent and this i think I, as far as I'm concerned, which I, I feel like I'm a pretty politically active person. I was a poli-sci major in undergrad, but the last four years has been uh, just a crash course in policy and mm. how a bill gets made, um, all of that right, stuff. Right. And I think a lot more people are a lot more aware of just how these things play out. And you mentioned that the AG is is an elected position. They, they, they can be Democrat or Republican. Mm-hmm even though it's supposed to be kind of the law is the law, it's supposed to be apolitical. I'm sure that affects the way things are run and the things that the, the, the AG focuses on. Um, How do, how does politics play a role in your office? Because in a lot of corporate offices, even nonprofit, usually if you're not an advocacy organization, you don't really talk about politics and it's very taboo. And we're seeing a lot of people seeing that play out in their own jobs. where like, things have been so heightened, but you can't talk about it at work. So, but what's that like in an office like yours?
2: Um, So just, just so I'm clear, you mean um, like the role of politics in the work or the role of like talking about politics while you're working there?
0: I think I'd say both, but let's start with the latter first. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of, uh, you know, employees talking about politics, I think everyone at the office kind of, you know, signs on with the understanding that it really doesn't matter what your politics are. We're here to weed out any sort of illegality, like I I mentioned before. Um, There's no doubt, though, that when you are bringing certain cases that are very closely tied to to headlines and stuff like that, you have to pay attention to them. Um, Whether your political leanings kind of come out while you're doing that. I think it's, it's kind of like depends person to person, but I think for the most part, there is a standard within the office, which is that like, we're here, we're here to do the work, we're representing the people of New York. And, um, you know, you kind of like put politics aside and you're assessing this really based on whether or not a law has been violated. And I think what was surprising in the last four years was that assessment was typically done within the state of New York, right? or as against maybe if, if it was beyond the state of New York, it was like a big company that had been doing something in many states and maybe that's that's what it was. But it was very, it was kind of very like just odd that it was federal agencies, you know, in, in some regard that we were examining their conduct or examining like, you know, the Administrative Procedure Act. I'm, I'm gonna get really nerdy here, but <laughs> no one ever thought that like civil rights law or civil rights practice was going to be like hinged on admin administrative procedure. And that's like, we all became experts in that in the last four years. And, um, and I think, you know, we're better for it, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I, not to dodge your question, but I think I just would say that um, there's a very strong standard within the office to, to really just do the work and assess the legality of things and bring, bring things based on that in terms of like the politics around that. It's a, it's there, but really our role is really just about the legality of things and and enforcement.
1: Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna shift gears. Um, I really like what you said about the past four years and it's something I haven't thought about kind of setting a new precedent in terms of the Civil Rights Bureau having to sue the federal government for various, like you said, illegalities. And that to me almost seems not in the context of the past four years, but just in the context of the Bureau as a whole, that seems like a silver lining to me out of the past administration, because I don't see why that hasn't been a practice throughout. Granted, maybe previous illegalities didn't reach to the levels they reached in the Trump years. Um, But Mm -hmm. certainly, like you said, uh, Obama's EPA had issues and I know that was through the environmental arm, but um, do you think it's a practice that's going to continue for not just Biden's Mm -hmm. administration, but going forward? And if so, what are you guys thinking are going to be the big challenges um, or the big focus areas for the past or for the next four maybe eight years.
2: Hmm. yeah, I mean, I think I think um, I don't know if I can really say, um you know what that practice is gonna look like moving forward, or anything really about that. Um, I-, I don't think i can I can kind of make a prediction. It's really, you know, like I said, the assessment is about illegality, and so that's kind of something that's made in the moment situational facts that that you make that assessment in terms of like the the work that the civil rights bureau you know has to do moving forward i think um what we can probably all agree on is the fact that the last four years have has like kind of um uncovered and even even though it, it was always there but it's kind of like brought to a lot of people's attention, very core fundamental civil rights issues that exist in this country that predated the last four years and will continue on, unfortunately, you know, past this moment. And I think that it would be good for a lot of, you know, just the civil rights sector generally to think about those things. I mean, like what happened last summer with the Floyd protests um, is an issue that we have, that has always existed, right? That's that has always existed in terms of like the two types of justice systems that exist in this country and and um, i think well maybe the last 4 years of, you know and this is i think true for the general population we've been constantly in a reactive mode we see a headline and then we're like oh my god can you believe that this happened or this person said this and this tweet happened and blah 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 and it's like shifting all of that anxiety and you know, just attention to, oh my God, all of our systems are completely inadequate, right? And unequal. And how do we fix that? And how do we bridge these gaps? And how do we actually be a productive part of fixing this problem? So I think that um, well, the last four years have kind of just, it's like a blur, um, it's a really, really, really good moment right now to do a reassessment of how Everyone on an individual level, but then also like you know, elected offices can really help shift all the stuff that we've been talking about and posting about, frankly.
0: Um. So, given that, how do you think that the this new administration um, can promote a more representative um, and diverse federal judiciary?
2: Um, well, I think, so first, I think this administration has um, at least promised that, you know, on their platform, um, that, that that would be the case. Um, one plug I will just make is that there's currently, and to our knowledge, never been a Muslim on the federal judiciary on the, as, as an appointed Article Three position. So I think that would be a great, you know, thing to do, um, just in terms of, uh, you know, diversifying the federal judiciary. And I'm want to be clear, I'm saying this in my personal capacity. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that I know what the administration has kind of said was that they want to assess um, backgrounds a little bit differently, you know, sometimes not differently, but open it up to um, those who have practiced in criminal justice reform. And, you know, maybe even like, public defenders, like that sort of background, I think, um, could be really interesting to help promote diversity in, in practice and in, in perspective. Um, but you know, it's not just sort of ethnic background or race and all of that, like those are components, but that's not the only thing I think having a more diverse understanding or more expansive understanding of what qualifies someone to be a judge. um, what, Sort of like you know examples. Do they have um, of of just like like beyond your regular sort of check pedigree? They went to this school. They did this. They did this. There's there's a lot more things can, that can inform um, someone who I think gets appointed and 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 just thinking a little bit more outside the box. But I, I do think that this administration has represented that they would. So it's gonna be would interesting consider, to see.
1: Would you consider me?
2: Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Really? (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I, it it wouldn't, it wouldn't be for me. But I do feel like I know quite a few people who would be great. um, But not me. I just, I, I, I I just, I'm not cut out for that, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) I have two questions. And in my head, they're related, but they may not be. So I'll throw Mm -hmm. them out and you answer them um, in whatever order you want to one of the hardest things for me as a civilian in the past administration was just the constant um not only information overload but like information burnout right it seemed more so than any other administration in my adult life it seemed like we were just being forced underwater every day to a point mm-hmm. where you just kind of get numb um so the two questions I have are, that was just me like as a civilian reading the news during my compliance day job. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, I can't mm-hmm. imagine how would I how I would have felt if I was living it for mm-hmm. my nine to five or eight to five or 12 to five, mm-hmm. whatever government hours are these days. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> you guys work very hard. Um, I, I can't imagine how I would feel if I was living it every single day. Yeah. So- How did you keep um, engaged, positive, optimistic? And Mm -hmm. how do you think society as a whole can continue to stay engaged and really affect change? Like you said, this is Mm -hmm. a really great moment for us to now take a breather Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: then regroup and figure out how to fix these Gigantic, gigantic, cavernous cracks that have emerged in the fabric of society. Um, mm-hmm. Based on the work you do and what you've seen, what do you think are like actual, tangible, workable things mm-hmm. people can do?
2: Yeah, and I mean, how I you think... not jumped
1: off a cliff. In summary, those <laughs> are questions.
2: so um, I'll take the cliff question first. Um, <laughs> no, I think. Um, I'll say this. And I, and I have like this very distinct memory of, you know, when the Muslim, the first Muslim band came down um, and everyone was kind of like, you know, at the airports or like in the streets, kind of, you know, protesting and, and, and that sort of stuff. And I, I was in my office like drafting, drafting things. You know what I mean? I think it was just experiencing all of this from like, social media posts to protesting, to actually like drafting papers and filing them and, and representing the cause that you have. So I think for me, it was almost like having this job for the last four years, um, again, in like my personal capacity um, was just almost, almost it did keep me sane because I, I, I know that I cared, a lo- I care a lot about these issues and I cared a lot about these issues at that time as well. And it really, there was like a level of satisfaction knowing that at least like I'm, I can help and do something here. And, and I had like the ability to do that, you know, and I was at the table. I think that kept me sane. Um, there's no doubt though, that obviously like, particularly in the last four years, um, like the flood of information on everything, right? Like on social media generally, um, like we see everybody's lives, you see every aspect of everyone's lives, like influencing to, you know, just like revolutions, frankly, happening on, you know, some, some social media platforms. Um, I think that there was, there have been moments where I just like dove too deep in, there's no doubt about it. But again, because it was so related to my work, I also had to focus those energies like on work. Um, and I think that, all of this was also kind of a result of this moment that we're in where we have like social media. It existed, it's existed for a while, but the degree to which it was used and, and has been kind of like almost weirdly therapeutic in some moments, but then also kind of toxic in other moments. It's just a free for all. There's like no regulation. There's no kind of rules of engagement. I would say on, um, On social media or like on the internet in a way and it was a lot of different factors that made us all I think feel this this heightened anxiety um and I do hope that moving forward there's kind of more healthier practices um but it's it's something that we as a society on a whole have experienced
1: Wait, are you going to tell me what I can do to affect change? What oh, my God. I question? forgot about that.
2: I forgot about that for
1: the question. I, just, I was like, waiting. I'm so sorry. No, it was a good chance. Okay. It was a good tangent.
2: Okay. Okay. Um. So in terms of, uh, you know, what we can do to affect change, I think, first of all, we need to not um just think that, like, the job's done because we, you know, there was a presidential election in November. Um, and by the way, this is, again, in my personal capacity, that... Um, you know, it gets, it's done when you have these massive campaigns and, and you have like your presidential election. I think January 5th was a really good example of how, like, you know, who's representing you in the Senate is a really important thing. Right. So like the Warnock Ossoff, um, runoff, like was really, really important. Um, and so in terms of how to stay engaged, I would probably say a couple things. So first, um, the notion that like all politics is local is so true, you know, like your street being cleaned, who's sitting on your school board, who is on your community board, if you're in New York City, all of these things matter. And they matter on the day to day. They matter whether certain religious houses of worship can be zoned in certain places and who's sitting on the zoning board. Um, And so I would say, on an individual level, there are so many opportunities to get involved and engaged in your own community. And it doesn't mean that you have to run for office or like run to sit on a board, like you can really just even get to know your own community. And I think particularly personally in New York City, it's been so fascinating to kind of be here during COVID and see like the neighborhoods, right? Like each neighborhood is kind of, I mean, um, amongst all of the like horrendous loss that, that has happened. I feel like each neighborhood has kind of become its own again. And people have, I think, who have stayed in New York, um, have kind of like gotten to know who, who their community is. And that like living here is not just this transactional relationship that you just live here and you're going to go to the coolest restaurant or you're going to do this, you're going to do that, but actually maybe get to know the people who are working in your neighborhood and, um, who also live in your neighborhood. You know, I think there's a duty there that I hope that a lot of people realized, um, when they had to sit at home for the last nine months, that there's a duty to kind of really know who your neighbor is, um, and, and be part of that. So I would say that I would also say, um, voting is, is a huge thing that we all can do and not just in, Presidential elections. There is, believe it or not, an election every year. Every single year, there's an election. There's election. There's elected office offices on the local level. There's elected offices on the state level. I mean, we have a state assembly in New York, right? And they dictate so many of the critical laws that affect New Yorkers. And um, you know, I think those those um, elections happen like every two years. So. I mean, I would just say, like, take a crash course in civics and understand, like, who your representatives are, when are they running, get to know them, um, and just be a part of of where you are. It's not just about um, kind of, like, going to the coolest restaurant that just opened and posting about it, you know, just, like, understanding maybe a little bit more about who people are, if that makes sense. It's a little, so- little tangential, but
0: thank you so much for saying that because one shout out to Zoran Mamdani, your state assembly rep that we just interviewed in the next episode or very first episode of this (laughs) season. And two, thank you for saying that because one, you articulated a point that I have tried to make in every episode since the quarantine series about uh, local Mm -hmm. elections and local politics being very important uh, in a way that I I haven't been able to. um, uh, uh, Because I think that's something that more and more people are paying attention to now, but it, it, because of the last four years, it's been such an overwhelming overload of information and, mm-hmm. um, also the sense of just like uh, loss in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. literally and just like existentially that there is, there are avenues where yeah. you can organize in your community. You can do, you can affect change and it really starts at the most basic level. Like, looking at who's running for an election and Mm -hmm. doing your research on who they are um, and voting in your midterm elections, it can be just as simple as that. It's just like, okay, who's running for this position? And do I like their politics? And oh yeah, I'll just pop by my local polling district and that can be your civic you just engage in your civic duty and you fulfilled it and you can go home and rest and you can take more active approaches to it like volunteering and and organizing your community and cleaning up your local park i live next to a story and there's a beautiful like little alliance that meets up like every Mm. weekend to like do things and so Mm -hmm. um i think have hearing you say that and not just me crazy screaming about people together, <laughs> but someone who's like in this work and does this day to day. I think means a lot, and I think it really does give people hope in general that they're that. Especially with this new administration coming in, it's like like a a, um, a breath of fresh air <laughs> and a sense mm-hmm. of relief that Zoran had talked about. Um, and, but there is a, still a lot of work to done and uh, work to get done, and we can do that work. Um, Mm -hmm. And then just to switch a little bit, um, we mentioned that you are a part of Mubani, which is the Muslim Bar Association. Wait, no, it is. I used to, you know what, I used to intern for you guys like way back when. Really? Yes, in like college. I was not a very good intern because I don't even remember what Mubani means. But if you could just let people know what Mubani is. And um, considering your, you know, part of leadership, it looks very different under your under your leadership. What are your main priorities, and what's your vision for your for your first term as president? Congratulations on that; it's pretty awesome.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, Mobani stands for the Muslim Bar Association of New York. We're an organization of lawyers and legal professionals, um, and some. Actually, non-legal professionals who are just really interested in giving back to the community, but also creating a space to um, for legal professionals professionals to advance in their careers. So, you know, we help law students, we help mid um, mid career attorneys, new attorneys, and try to just link them up. We have a membership directory, a job board, and all of that good stuff. So, if anyone wants to become a member, um, you can go to mabani.org um, to to learn more. Um, in terms of my involvement, I actually became president in June of 2020, which was quite a moment. Um, you know, everything we've done since then has obviously been virtual, but its it's been very rewarding. Um, we actually, our board, we held a retreat in at the end of July, and we kind of decided we're going to have a few different goals that are going to kind of be our guideposts for the year. And one of them is to ensure that we are um, amplifying underrepresented voices. And so I think, you know, what that means is even within our community and outside. So even particularly within our community, making sure that we have different diverse voices, Shia voices, Ahmadi voices, Black voices, which have historically not necessarily had a space in um, Muslim institutions in the United States as, you know, a lot of us who are South Asian have grown up. Um, I think there's a particular history there, but it's also kind of on us and our generation, in my opinion, to really recognize the systemic issues that exist within our own communities. And that's something that's very personal to me. And, um, in running Mobani, I am very kind of like committed in whatever way I can to try to just create space, um. And, you know, I'm not delusional to think that I, myself, or our board is going to, you know, fix an age-old problem, but, you know, we have to start. We have to start somewhere. We have to acknowledge, frankly, like just as a baseline. Um, I think beyond that, you know, we want to facilitate pipelines to leadership. In that context, we created actually a judiciary initiative. And um, our goal there is to first, on like one end of the spectrum, um, like the law student clerkship and to really just demystify that whole process to allow kind of law students the understanding of, well, oh, you can do a clerkship with a judge. What does that mean? How do you get it? It's not it's not necessarily laid out unless you know someone, right? So um, we're trying to just like demystify that, kind of democratize that information. Um, and then on the other end, we, you know, would love to see a and the appointment of great judges. And it would be great if, you know, a few were Muslim or one, at least. Um, so, you know, we've been just trying to navigate and understand the process of judicial appointments on the federal level and the state level, and really just supporting um, people who want to move forward in that process, and or who are already in that process, because we do have some trailblazers here in New York, we have um, on the state end, we have Judge Shahabuddin Ali, and we have uh, Judge Carolyn Walker-Diallo, who are both supervising judges in the New York State um, Supreme Court level, and, um, or sorry, the New York State Civil Court level, I should say. And um, I think, you know, making sure that them as trailblazers feel supported also by their community, because um, they're doing a lot. They're doing a lot. Um, and yeah, on the federal end, um, hoping we have we have people there too, so that's kind of just a little bit of an overview of of what we're working on there.
1: I love that. I love that. And I feel like these initiatives are so different. I've been a Mubani member for too many years. Um, <laughs> and I feel like these initiatives are really different. And I don't want you to underestimate the value of just creating that space for these underrepresented voices, right? I Like you said, it has to start somewhere and it doesn't mean that you're going to fix the problem in a week or a month or in your first term. But that first step of just making that space, that's I think the biggest obstacle. So kudos to you and the rest of the leadership team um, for starting that. Can I have one more question. Mm-hmm. You're one of the nicest people I know, and it's not <laughs> rare or it's not easy I think to maintain that um, as – a litigator. I think the practice does something, um, because you have to adopt a certain, a certain je ne sais quoi. shout out to Sanya's <laughs> <Sonia's> half French <laughs> husband. <laughs> um, you have to adopt a certain something, right? To be able to successfully litigate. How do you balance that? Um, especially so, given the, the caseload that you litigate. Okay. Well, so first of all, um,
2: don't, don't, nobody, nobody calls you. Nice.
1: No, no, well. no, nobody
2: calls me oh. nice. Calls me I thought you were going to try to correct so. my French pronunciation. All oh my right. gosh. Do, do you think I, I don't speak French yet? I need to learn. So that's like a whole other conversation. Um, No, I mean, I would say, I mean, thank you so much for saying that. But um, I do have like a very firm part of my personality where I do feel like I am able to kind of be like drawing the line um, when I need to. But I think. Um, litigating is a really interesting thing, right? It's kind of like being in um, like a fight, right? You are, you're in a fight. It's literally an adversarial like setup. Um, but there's so much strategy around it and behind it and understanding what your North Star is and understanding like, well, what does this step mean for that North Star? And sometimes it's, it's not always being aggressive, right? It's sometimes it's, it's pulling back. Um, And sometimes it's just knowing when to stop. And I think there there are a lot of skills and tools within litigation that if you have the opportunity to practice it, um, it can make you actually, weirdly, um, one of the best mediators. It doesn't make sense, but it it actually um, does kind of equip you with the tools to say, okay, well, that's not relevant. So like put that aside. Um, again, what's the North Star? Like, let's focus. Is this worth bringing, you know, emotion on or how could this play out? And it's kind of like a strategy game, which is why we all had to do logic games on the LSAT, right? I mean, <laughs> um, so that, that's what I would say. I think for me personally, litigation has given me kind of like tools in a toolbox to actually help mediate um, really difficult situations.
1: I love that. I love that. A game of risk.
2: Exactly. (laughs) I
1: don't know how to play risk, which is why I'm the fakest attorney in the world. Um, Stadia, to wrap this up, can you tell us, and I'm going to defer to you on how you want to answer this question. We like to end Mm -hmm. our episodes with like lessons learned. Um, So it can be a lesson you've learned through your work with the Bureau. Um, Mm -hmm. It can be a lesson you've learned through quarantine or through any one of the specific um, civil rights issues you worked on, or pandemic, or I don't know, the lesson you learned this weekend, a lesson you learned through this conversation. (laughs) Tell us something.
2: Um, So like, just generally a lesson I've learned. Yeah. Okay, I'm trying to think. Um I mean (laughs) science
1: or something. I'm watching Breaking Bad, so now I know how to make
2: math, but Oh wow. Okay. Um yeah, no, I would say um look, I would say I would say this to anyone who's listening who's like a young, maybe person of color who's working in a professional environment, um, where it's, it's difficult. Like, you know, your, your voice is not necessarily always at the table. And when it is, you don't necessarily feel like, you know, you can, you can speak up. I'm, I'm not saying that I've ever had that experience. I'm just saying, you know, I think sometimes as people of color um, and women in particular, when we're sitting in rooms where like huge things are happening, we think like, oh, I shouldn't speak up or I, maybe I shouldn't ask that question. It's, it's a dumb question. I shouldn't lean I don't even want to use the word, um, but I shouldn't like kind of, um, assert myself. And what I would say is one lesson I have learned throughout my career is that, um, like you, there, there is no stupid question. There's no stupid comment. There's no stupid analysis. Anyone who has the confidence to be able to kind of like, just say something to contribute in the conversation, um, you, you get respect that way. And so, I would just kind of give that advice because that's something that I have personally learned. I've there's been so many times where I'm sitting in a room and I want to ask a question. It's like comes in my mind, but I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to say that. Somebody else says it like two seconds later, and I'm like, I, I thought of that. I know, I know that I could have said that, but um, I think I've trained myself, you know, over the years that just like go into the confidence box, pull it out, and and say what you want to say because. Um, you can. There's a reason you're at that table. There's a reason you're in the job. There's a reason you're in the room.
1: The confidence box. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Gotta get me. Faiza, hit me um. with a lesson learned. <laughs> um, I, Fun fact. Pull it out of your confidence box, girl. Yes. Come on. Well, <laughs> fun fact. I
0: just got this because I was very curious, but black Muslims make up a fifth of all Muslims in the U.S., it's a very big percentage. Yes. Um, Huge. So, yeah. And then two, just kind of piggybacking, like we're in lecture, um, piggybacking off of what Sonia just said. Something that I keep telling my cousins or some, or even coworkers, or to myself is this is per- my own personal little mantra: have the confidence of a mediocre white man, because they don't give a shit about nothing. And they say the first thing that comes out of their to uh, out of their minds, and they get applauded for it. And there are a lot of people who are in your office um who are in in politics, who are in positions of power that have failed upwards because they had the confidence to speak up. so don't just like Sonia said, just pull it out, pull it out of that confidence box and say something. Um I think generally my lesson learned is that um, there's still a lot of, although there's still a lot of work to do, there's a lot of hope because there are people like Sonia out there doing it. Um, and we can rally around these kinds of north stars uh, and, and rising stars. So, you know, I really appreciate you being on here in both your professional and personal capacity and doing a wonderful <laughs> job towing that line. You were very diplomatic. Um, and thank you for, for putting up with what? our very invasive questioning. Uh, um, but yeah, so that's, that's my lesson
1: learned. What about you, Mehek? Um, so, you know, we've, we've talked about this a lot during the past season and just generally in our offline conversations about the importance of civic engagement and your civic responsibility and getting involved at all levels and not just presidential elections, but for some reason, I still don't think I grasped the, um, the entirety of it. Like Sonia's point about, not just voting for your mayors and you know your judges or whatever, stuff like the zoning board. I didn't even think about mm. that and how much of your day-to-day community building is affected by the zoning board. Like as the daughter of an architect and the husband or the wife of an engineer, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't even connect, like my neurons didn't fire and connect that. But you're so right. It like really... There's levels to it. And, you know, so thank you for bringing that clarity. Um, and my other lesson learned is that I'm supporting Sonia for a judge, whether or not she chooses to accept. <laughs> so stay tuned. We're going to get that hashtag that's my, trending. That's my <laughs> judiciary for initiative for Mobani. <laughs> <laughs> But we appreciate you. Thank you for coming And Yeah, like Fiza said. Sorry Thank you we're for having me. and gossipy and trying no, to make that out <laughs> <laughs> Trump supporting colleagues.
2: <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I um I appreciated the this opportunity. I think you know it it's really meaningful just for me because um I feel like like I I said this in the beginning, but really you know the role of being at like a state office in the last four years was so different than it was before. And so, and I don't, I don't want that to go away. I want that awareness to kind of like stay. So it was really meaningful to be able to come and talk about this here. Um, and thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, new episodes drop every other Wednesday. You can check us out on Instagram at the Fem Dementalist for our latest episodes, behind the scenes, and more goodies. And listen, like, and subscribe to us
0: on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud.